the the cry and the attempt to to not implicate God in any of the realities of sin and its adjudication in the world it just does not do justice to to the severity of it or to the glory of his answer for it welcome to the stand firm podcast i'm nick lannon of grace anglican church in louisville kentucky and i am here today with matt kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Excellent. Great, Nick. So my voice held out until about 10 minutes after our Easter service was over. I'm still a little bit scratchy, but it was pretty much gone. A lot of clergy get sick after Holy Week. How are you guys doing? How was your Easter's? I'm still tired, but it was great. It was a great Holy Week, one of the best on record. We, We had some pretty bad ones. We had some pretty good ones. This is one of the best we had. Like we had one guy, and what made it really wonderful is that um, on Good Friday, one of the one of the one of the guy we've been praying for for ten years, whose whose wife is a believer, he's just this hard skeptic. I mean, I've had lunch with him so many times, and he's given me every. I mean, if you every every answer to every apologetic answer that Christians have, he's he's articulated and uh, you know, he was doing everything he could to resist, um, resist the gospel. And he gave in on Friday. So it was, uh, it was a beautiful thing. He came to faith. Yeah. It's great. And, uh, his, uh, you know, it's a long road. He's been all his life, uh, an enemy of Christ. And so suddenly he's on the other side and he's, mm. he's kind of, doesn't know what to do with himself, but, um, right. what is he credited to does he does it finally your your sermon he finally it, yeah it's, it's me you know I, yeah. I did that. So, 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 well no. some say apollo some say paul right, and, right. and certain people say matt right right <laughs> no i mean he, he, his wife has been you know we've all been praying for him for 10 years i mean we just it's been i love the that whole, the whole church has been really hoping that he would in believing the God can break his heart, heart open and, and God did. Um, so uh, yeah, it's been just a combination of things that God used. Great. <laughs> yeah. We had a wonderful, we had a wonderful um, sort of celebration and it was, it was packed, you know, back to, I mean, the people are out there. That was a little bit <laughs> sort of bittersweet a little bit. It was like, well, y'all still know where we are. And uh, you know, apparently this is, if you're going to go to church on Easter, this is where you come. But um you know, after the virtual Easter and then last year, even we had uh, kind of social distance. I mean, we were open, but we, you know, there was a registration and all the things. Um, It was nice to just kind of blow it out. You know, I mean, we had timpanis and choirs and we've got this wonderful new music minister who um, is really, really bringing a fresh um, sound uh, to the worship and i don't know if it's like a thing but i don't know if they do it all over the place but he drops out um you know the the music drops out like at various times like here actually hear the people singing and the first couple of times he did it when he came it was like me you know and him and then like four other people singing because it was people were so disconcerted by it but like we we really rose to the occasion this past easter and it was awesome we sang that hymn or not a hymn that song stronger you know you have saved me. It is written. Christ is risen. You know, the song, like the whole dropped out and like the whole 400 something people in the congregation singing loudly. It was, it was majestic. It really was. I was um, pleasantly um, not surprised, but I was um, really edified. And so praise God. It was, um, it was a great day. Amen. Well, speaking of Holy Week, after we recorded last week's episode, we usually record on Tuesdays. 
it was after we recorded our Holy Week episode that I started seeing the annual flood of the cross is not about penal substitution takes on social media. Every year at Easter, we hear that Jesus was definitely not taking a punishment upon himself that we deserve bearing God's wrath at sin on our behalf. Now, we've talked on this show about atonement theories before, way back in episode two, but it's high time to revisit the idea. There are a lot of claims that people make in an effort to undermine what's called the penal substitutionary nature of the atonement, such as the fact that it was invented in modernity a thousand years after Jesus lived, that it makes the Lord into a divine child abuser and more. So I did a little bit of research, looked at some Brian Zond, Steve Chalk, Greg Boyd and others, and tried to distill the anti-penal substitution argument into a couple of summary questions that we're going to try to look into this week. As usual, we'll see how far we get. Uh, so let's spend a few minutes reminding our listener what penal substitutionary atonement actually is, and then look at the merits, or lack thereof, as we'll argue, of some of the arguments against it. So guys, what does penal substitutionary atonement refer to? It's a great name it's a, because, it, because it describes exactly what we're, it's very easy to define if you use that, that term. So penal uh, has to do with punishment. Um, the punishment that is due to sin, which is both uh, death of the body and the eternal condemnation um, for the, the, the sinner. Um, that's the punishment part of that. The uh, substitution is, is the idea that we, in order to be justified, in order to be to be brought into a place where we could have peace with God, either we would have to bear that, or someone would have to take that penalty from us uh, on our behalf, in our place, as our as our representative, so our substitute. And then atonement, of course, is the is the as uh, yeah is the idea of a sacrifice that that makes uh, that satisfies that uh, takes away the wrath or takes away the. Uh, the, the anger that is righteously, rightly, rightly directed by a holy God towards sin. So put those all three together, put all three of those together, penal substitutionary atonement is the idea that Jesus, as God's son, took to himself um, our sin, uh, the fullness of it, and paid in his body and soul. And um, uh, we can debate about this, but I, I think it was in the... Uh, those, those six hours that he was on the cross, particularly the three hours between noon and 3 p.m., he bore the eternal condemnation for all those who, um, who trust in him during those hours on the cross, uh, bearing death of the soul and ultimately, of course, death of the body in our place as our substitute, bearing that punishment so that our sins could be atoned for and that we could, as a result of that, those who all who believe um, have, have peace with God. Jay, do you want to add anything to the definition or do you want to get right into some of the arguments against the idea? No, I think that's pretty much uh, sums it up. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think the, the whole conversation, of course, needs to be bounded by the fact that it's still a great mystery. I mean, we've talked about this before. I mean, you know, exactly the, the mechanics of it, um, you know, will be revealed possibly to us someday. Um, but, you know, but we are going, the scriptural warrant, the witness of the church, and it's good Anglican way of thinking about it, you know, scripture, tradition, and reason um, stands solidly with the fact that it's not exclusively penal substitution, meaning there are other aspects to what's taking place on the cross, but it is definitely not less than penal substitution. And to argue that somehow 
to have him crucified in our place, as Paul says in Romans 14, uh, four, uh, four, excuse me, um, crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. You know, they argue that that's somehow not has a, a, a penal or, or a, a punishment aspect to it is, um, is not a, is not a Christian argument. Um, it's, it's really not, uh, certainly not within the bounds of historic Christian orthodoxy. Um, not, not in any, certainly Protestant sense, not the Western uh, Roman Catholic sense. You know, I guess if you get into some Orthodox theologians, you might find a somewhat different emphases. But if someone begins, I think we talked about this a second one, if someone begins genuinely questioning this out loud or starting to make arguments, um, apologizing for or excusing or even dismissing penal substitutionary atonement, you should back away. You should reach for your holsters, as they say. <laughs> you, know, you should start wondering if you're in the right place, the right church, or if you are, um, because you are, you're very quickly um, going to the far, far edges of uh, reliable biblical Christian orthodoxy at that point. So let's start with what I think might be one of the easiest of these arguments to dispel, which is the idea that penal substitutionary atonement is an invention of modernity, that it's, it is unknown to the early church. It, it arises with Anselm in the 11th century, and that it is merely some new idea that was imposed upon the history of the church and has, has, no, has no substance in what Jesus actually lived and taught and the church that rose up in the immediate aftermath of his life. What, how do we respond to that argument? Yeah, I mean, there, there a lot of people who make that argument go back to St. Anselm and uh, his theory of satisfaction that you can find a Curtius Homo. Uh, and it's a uh, certainly he plays on the idea. Um, and and so the, what they'll say is, that he, you know, Anselm's mind was full of notions of honor and medieval uh, medieval dignity. And, and he, he so he kind of imposed those ideas of honor on God. God's God's been dishonored by sin. He's got to be his honor has to be restored. So somebody has to pay the. The, the price to restore his honor. And that's himself. He does that in himself. That's in the crisis. So this is, uh, um, but that, but, and then, so the, then the argument is that's where it began. And it was just elaborated as, as, as time went on. And then of course the wicked Calvinist got a hold of it and it became, uh, it became even more, you know, uh, violent. And so in some, some way it has to be misogynist some, in some way it's just terribly <laughs> awful. And so, so, um, <laughs> but, but let me, just, I, I, I'll read to you just, you know, this is a, uh, let me just read this to you. Uh, and I'll tell you where it's from. But when our wickedness had reached its height and it had been clearly shown that its reward, punishment, and death was impending over us, and when the time had come which God had before appointed for manifesting his own kindness and power, how the one of one love of God through exceeding regard for men did not regard us with hatred nor thrust us away nor remember our iniquity against us, but showed great long suffering and bore with us, he himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us the holy one for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sin than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one, and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. That is from the epistle to, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing this correctly, Diogenes, Diognetes, 
It's in eighty third one thirty five is what it's dated to. This is like this is uh, this is like one of the early is early early fathers, not apostolic, but early fathers um, that you that you have that there, and you can you can find similar similar things in a lot of the early fathers. Of course, they. they the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement as we know it was not articulated as such, but the substance of it was. The substance right. of it was right. <laughs> was there. You can find the concept everywhere. The church well, only had to articulate these things as affronts to them were presented. And it's thoroughly biblical. I mean, the, right. the, the real way to get away, the, the real way that I've heard recently to get around um, the sort of biblical witness to um, the reality of substitutionary atonement is as reflected sort of through Hebrews back onto the sacrificial system in the Old Testament in particular. You know, we talk about there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, you know, that, the, that there's a final sacrifice in Christ and all of these wonderful images that the um, preacher in Hebrews comes up with is to actually question whether or not they had the idea of God correct in the Old Testament. Like I've heard this explicitly through a quote unquote pastor who was preaching through uh, Brian Zahn's book on the um, uh, what's it called? Sinners in the hands of a loving God. And he was preaching, quote, well, he was preaching a quote unquote Christian sermon, basically saying that the syncretism of the Old Testament had resulted in the uh, Hebrews importing pagan understandings of God, not, not simply into their ideas of God, but into the sacrificial system itself. So that's why um, we have this clear sacrificial system in the Old Testament that is it's involved with appeasements and expiation and appropriation and the guilt sacrifice and all these various blood offerings for guilt, sin and, and the various um, uh, transgressions that that in and of itself was a mistake and a misunderstanding of God. And so even if, which is clear, the writer to Hebrews is correctly interpreting the Old Testament sacrificial system as being sort of a type and shadow of the final sacrifice to come, that the entire system is incorrect and invalidated because of some sort of error within the Bible and the scriptural witness itself, which is, I think, at the very least, is an honest way of going about it, because otherwise you have to you have to do some, you know, mental gymnastics around the clear witness of scripture. But for me, that was quite shocking to hear in a in the context of an otherwise seemed to be, you know, Christian church, that this was the argumentation, although um, there was a refreshing aspect to it to a certain degree, because at least it was it was honest. It said, well, acknowledging you know, what the scripture says. That's right. Yeah, the scripture says this, but the Bible is wrong. It's like, well, we've heard that before. <laughs> so we can, uh, it, you know, dismiss that out of hand, which is, um, which is, uh, you know, thank you for being so clear. And we will uh, take our ourselves uh, elsewhere. But at any rate, that was a fascinating um, uh, sort of explication of it for me. And I haven't personally read the Brian Zahn book, but I, um, I've i now have heard a three-part sermon series, the very least <laughs> explicating it. And so I can find it uh, you know, quite interesting. Although for us, you know, we've been dealing, I mean, I remember reading back in seminary, some 20, whenever we were, 20 years ago, or it seems like, um, uh, the nonviolent atonement. Remember this book? There yeah. was all the rage because you know the entire 1979 Book of Common Prayer was essentially a, a liturgical um, sort of uh, manifestation of this sort of desire to make God kinder, gentler, less wrathful, less 
less frightening, you know? And so the, they took out all of the, I mean, that was explicitly said, you know, they took out the prayer of humble access. They changed the confession, you know, it's no longer almighty God. Uh, you know, it was, uh, let us confess sins against God and our neighbor as if that was even Very remotely cool. as important. That's right. It's <laughs> like, it's in, you know, and so all of this is nothing new. It's just another indication, another instance of where it's sort of the rot that started deep and uh, sort of in an elite, a rarefied air has um, has just spread to, you know, local big box church next door to you. And it's the same old argument. It's the same old, uh, you know, Bible uh, twisting. And it's the same it's the same lack of, of uh, holy and reverent fear that the fool displays before um, the reality of, of a living God. Yeah. Suffice to say that Isaiah was talking penal substitution almost 2,000 years before Anselm and 700 years before Jesus when he says that the Messiah would be crushed for our transgressions and wounded for our iniquities. So let's move on to our next uh, critique of substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement specifically, in that it turns God into a divine child abuser. The idea that he is meeting out his wrath on an innocent who is his son. How can a good God behave in this way? Yeah, I've heard that far more often recently than I used to. And then, and, and that's, that's the idea. Okay. Here's this, here's, you know, his, his poor child um, who's, you know, kind of minding his own business and the father forces him to go down and take on our, our, our nature. And then, and then just whips him, just, just beats the living tar out of him and kills him. Uh, because he can't control anger, right? So, so he's got to so, kill somebody. So the, yeah, he's got to kill somebody, right? So, so the father, the father then is like, is like you're right, the abusive father. Somebody's getting killed here today. He's had a bad day. He's had a bad day at work. <laughs> you know, the angels are just not behaving as he haven't behaved. So he comes home and he just beats his son. That's right. Um, to, to the death. golden streets are tarnished <laughs> for right. the last time. Right. Right. It's. It, I mean, it, a, a lot of these, a lot of these objections can be can be uh, identified as eisegetical right? imposing you know cultural ideals onto onto the under biblical concepts and uh, but i think this is probably this probably takes the cake because it takes a, a very a, a cultural therapeutic issue and and just plasters it over <laughs> over the idea of uh, of the atonement and then comes out making the atonement abuse um, it's also a Trinitarian error. I mean, it's, Trinita it's a Trinitarian error because it assumes there's some kind of division in the will of God that the son is somehow not a party right. to the, the, need, the necessity of, of, ex of, of propitiating his own wrath. And, and in fact, it's the father and the son together propitiating the wrath of God, the son enduring um, the wrath, the father exha exhausting it, but there's not a division of the will in any way whatsoever. And and to say and to say that it's child abuse, you 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 just you basically created at least two gods, maybe <laughs> maybe more, depending on what you think about the Holy Spirit. But you've created two gods, two separate deities who are who are at odds, and one is beating the other. And that that's never been any part of the of the doctrine of the atonement, uh, much less this the substitutionary penal penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just clearly a uh, reflection of the the what the almost the first 
major heresy of Marcionism. It's a division between God, the father of wrath and, you know, Jesus, the, the, um, the God of love, you know, and this kind of, um, this division and it posits is exactly as you said, Matt, this, this, um, this anti-Trinitarian division into the heart of God himself that, uh, just denies again, the entire witness of scripture from the beginning to the end. And so, you know, I think it's, it's, it makes sense. It's, it's interesting. It's a, it's a, it's an objection that, that appropriates the same kind of ham-fisted, um, static uh, misunderstanding of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as it's purporting to have an objection to, you know, because it's, it's, um, yeah, again, I mean, that's, it's, I understand uh, from a certain sense what they're trying to, to point out, which is that it does seem unjust. It's just, as long as you don't believe that sin actually has a, a, an actual consequence in the world, you know, if there's a, you know, it's like the idea that people go around today about just canceling debts, you know, it's like, why don't you just like, what's the big deal? I just canceled debt. It's like, well, debt actually implies that somebody, um, you know, spent something that they no longer have access to, you know, or that there was a commodity, a category, or there was a, a something, meaningful um, that was used that is no longer there and needs to be repaid, right? I mean, that's what a debt is. And so if sin, similarly speaking, again, I don't know exactly um, how far we want to get into kind of like discussion of it ontologically or whatnot, but it broke the world. I mean, sin, sin broke the relationship, you know, shattered the image and broke the world. And so that is a, quite a debt. And to say it can just be ignored or sort of wiped away um, doesn't actually appreciate the magnitude, the magnitude of it, or the severity, or the um, the consequences of it. And so, if we had any question about any of those aspects of sin, then looking at the cross should take it away from us, because whatever the answer to sin was, or whatever the question is to how ma- how great our sin was, the cross is its answer, which should keep us all, um, you know, as the hymn goes, could make us all tremble. You know, I mean, that's that's. Uh, that's where we are with that. And so the idea that you're flippantly talking about sin is an incredible devaluation of the magnitude and the profundity of the cross. And I think that's, um, um, yeah, that's, I think that's, that's among the many errors in that statement. Um, that's probably, in my opinion, one of the, the, the most um, obviously glaring is that if you can just say that, then you, are, you and I are not talking about sin in the same way that the Bible does, and certainly not the same way that the cross seems to reflect. That actually leads directly into our next critique. Thank you, JD, for that lovely transition. Um, <laughs> they call me the best color man in the business. Best color man in the business. So <laughs> we are called by God to forgive. So why can't God just forgive? In other words, what are we to make of all the instances in Scripture where God allegedly forgives people without demanding a sacrifice? And the scriptural instance that I often hear brought up in this case is the prodigal son. When the prodigal returns home, the father does not demand recompense, does not demand a sacrifice of any kind. He simply welcomes the son back into his home and throws him a wonderful feast. Why, if God calls us to forgive, why can't he quote, just forgive? I mean, it's kind of ironic that the one telling that parable is, 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 is the reason that that he can tell the parable. The re, the reason any the reason anyone is forgiven by God in the scriptures, I think, goes goes directly to the cross. There there is no forgiveness outside the cross. And the, now, why can't God just forgive? That's a that's 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 a a question that would make that makes sense for us to ask because 
Um, I, as a sinner, have no have no no right to withhold forgiveness to other sinners. I, I'm guilty, and I, I I need to forgive because I've been forgiven, uh, not just by God but by other people. But when we're talking, it's it's a category mistake to kind of impose that on to um, to again shift that ideal on onto God. And, and, and there's a reason he's he's the governor of the cosmos, who is who is doesn't he's not just just he doesn't just have justice as kind of a you know something he does he is the fountain of justice the essence of justice right so 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 asking why god can't forgive is is equivalent to asking why don't we just open all the doors of the penitentiaries why don't why don't we just close all the courts of law Mm. why don't we why don't we uh, do away with all penalties for every crime um, and, and there's a reason for that, because because even as, as decadent and, and horrific as our as our culture is, we still recognize that there has to be some kind of penalty. There has to be some kind of consequence for a violation of basic goodness, as uh, even is. I know we have our, in our culture doesn't understand what that means anymore, but there's, there's still that vestige there left over because we're made in the image of God. So, so uh, the, one of the, one example I often use is, you know, if you imagine, um, you know, so if, if, if JD and I get in an argument and then we go out, we say we have, we get so, we get so heated, we step outside. Um, Fisticuffs, and uh, and and of course I win, and Jay's on the ground. Um, so, so to repair that relationship, I would have to just you know I'd say I'm sorry if there are no police around, no one's arrested. I just you know we could we could we could repair that relationship with just an apology and maybe maybe uh, I don't know, give him a present or something. I don't know. Yeah. Hear that. Um, but if but if if JD's a police officer and he pulls me over for speeding. And I get out of my car and punch him in the nose. The penalty is greater. Now, why is that? Because I've not just I've not just punched JD. I've punched the, someone who represents our entire system of order. Right? I, I, I punched a, a police officer. Right? Uh, they get up another step. If if I if I'm if JD's a judge and I'm being and I'm in his courtroom and he sentences me says I'm guilty of something and I you know rush the chair. And, and beat him the penalty is even greater why because he is in his he's that's not just jd he represents justice uh, our whole legal system uh, beyond even what a police officer would uh, jd's a, the, the president of the united states and he's giving a speech and i don't like what he says and i jump up on stage and beat him <laughs> well, i'm, I'm going to prison <laughs> yeah but it's not just jd at that point right it's, it's jd it's jd as right. as as the nation right so now when we're talking about god we're talking about uh, about a uh, about a being he's a, he, you know jd's playing a role in those he's either police officer or judge or or, or governor or whatever or president god is those things both in his role and his essence you sin against any an immortal, eternal, all perfectly just God. You deserve the the fullness of, of of hell. And why? Because because justice must be maintained if there's going to be any order in the cosmos. Mm. Um, God's holy. He's just. There can, he he cannot allow sin to go unpunished any more than a judge can allow a serial killer to go uh, under the streets without any penalty. It's, 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 it, it would, if he did so, he would not be a good God. He would be evil mm-hmm. if he didn't punish. 
And I think even in your very lowest rung example there, where you just take JD outside and knock him <laughs> to the ground, if JD forgives you, any forgiveness always involves taking back onto oneself the yeah. weight of the injustice, right? So we're called to turn the other cheek. So in forgiveness, JD is waving his right to punch you back and absorbing literally yep. into his face the right, violence right. that you have done against him. Similarly, in the parable of the prodigal son, the father doesn't, quote, demand a recompense if you follow, I think it's Steve Chalk's line of thinking here. But indeed, the father has given half of his inheritance away and he does not demand it back. He has been punched in the face and right. forgives taking the weight of the sin onto himself just in the same way that when Christ is on the cross, it is our father taking the weight of sin back onto himself. Right. Forgiveness always entails yeah. this kind of taking the weight of sin onto the forgiver. The, the unmerciful servant parable is another example. I mean, how the, 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 the amount that servant owed the king who gave him pardon was what the equivalent of you know, gross national product, I think, of, of, of modern nation state. And so to forgive the unmerciful servant, the debt, the king had to take, absorb a huge loss, a massive right. loss, an incalculable loss. There's no such thing yeah. as, quote, just forgiveness. Right. Right. right, right. Well, that's, I'll never forget, I had this conversation actually with James Dunn, um, of all people, when he came and spoke at Trinity when we were there, Nick, I don't know if you yeah, remember. And I do. I told him that my interests were um, at the time in Luther's theology of the cross, well, I guess it remains so, Luther's theology of the cross. And you know, I was kind of interested in the um, Kierkegaard and kind of the kind of the existentialist at the time. And he was, he was saying, oh, yes, you know, the, the big question of the cross, um, you know, is always very interesting. And I was like, well, I think it's kind of interesting, too. And he's but he actually has he offered this question. He's like, yeah, that's he's like, well, a good avenue for for consideration is why could Jesus have not just come down and preach the parable of the prodigal son? And like he offered that to me. He said, that's the question you need to consider, because the cross seems to say more than what the prodigal son says. Um, or at least it, it fills it out. And so I've thought about that discussion because I was just, you know, second semester theology at that point. But I have since come to sort of not just believe, but really be convicted that, you know, many of these parables, not the least of which the prodigal son, um, only really makes sense in light of the cross, in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, because only then do we begin to see the parable of the wedding feast, the parable of the unjust servants, the parable of the eleventh hour worker. The, I mean, all the parables, um, uh, but not the least of which, the prodigal son uh, begin to actually take flesh and make sense when we realize the enormity of the price that was going to be paid. That Jesus, of course, was telling his people in the midst of these parables, it was going to happen to him, and they were like, "Sure, whatever, whatever that metaphor means, too, Jesus. I'm sure we'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure that out when we get there." And so, of course, on after that Easter morning. We have, um, you know, a, a little bit while later, the Apostle Paul obviously getting um, re-corrected and changed back into um, or back on the right path. And then after three years of him, you know, thinking about and digesting the Old Testament in light of what he now knows is the risen Christ in his body, uh, we get um, a lot of what we now hang our our understanding of the atonement on, you know, through Galatians and Romans and many of his um, letters, uh, not, I mean, not exclusively, but, you know, I think when you would say to someone, well, why couldn't we just have the prodigal son? It's like, well, because we don't, 
I mean, that's the that's the final answer of it is like we actually don't just have him preaching the prodigal son. We have him dying on a cross with the earliest witnesses attesting to for the sins of the world. I mean, that's what we have. And so the the onus is not to figure out why can't the prodigal son be uh, understood without the cross. The onus is what does the cross have to say about the parable of the prodigal son, which is, again, back to the biblical, the perspicuity of Scripture, the witness of the church and the actual justice uh, done to the scandal, which Paul talks about, which is this this word of the cross for for the sake of the world. You've done it again, JD. You're, you've you've led us right into our next question. This is one <laughs> um, that I got off of Greg Boyd's website. It's a two part question, really. Um, he says, if the main thing Jesus came to do was to appease the Father's wrath by being slain by Him for our sin. Couldn't this have been accomplished just as easily when, say, Jesus was a one-year-old boy as when he was a 33-year-old man? Were Jesus's life teachings, healing, and deliverance ministry merely a prelude to the one really important thing he did, namely die? So is all that just prelude to the important thing, or is it somehow important too? That's such a truncated Uh, truncated Who are these people? Yeah, I mean, how how do you get there? I mean, you have to... You know, first, you have to say that that our justification, and not not, not just our justification, our the, our whole salvation is uh, consists only in what what Jesus did in the cross, and that's not that's that's not the case. He lived uh, to life at to manhood in perfect obedience to his Father. That's um, just as necessary. He just as necessary. Yeah, what's called the active obedience. Yeah, of his active his active obedience to the Father is is stands for us when we turn to Him. That becomes our righteousness. Uh, that it's, it's credited to us as if as if we. Well, were and his teach, and his teaching ministry reveals as his as the the law as the holiness the righteousness yep. of God. It reveals um, ultimately the the standard by which we were judged. You know, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, just yeah. go down the list of things. I mean, the things that he actually taught and lived. Um, were the basis for our condemnation, you know, go away from the yeah, I, mean, I, so. <laughs> I had a conversation with somebody this week about that. And it's, they're saying, oh, I love my favorite part of the Bible is the Sermon on the Mount. And it's like, man, I can't get through that thing without feeling <laughs> awful. How do you how is that your favorite part of the Bible? Um, but uh, but anyway, it, yeah, you're right. The, the, Jesus revealed the law, which drives us to the gospel. That's right. Um, he's the incarnation itself is the means by which he bound himself to our to us in a way that you, when you believe in him, are, are, are made one with him in a spiritual sense. Uh, his incarnation takes up our nature, our human nature, and restores and redeems it. So, I mean, I, some would say, and I would agree, even without sin, if sin had never entered the world, uh, it would have been necessary for God to become incarnate in his son um, in order to, to bring us into a full union with him, which we didn't have yet in the garden, which we would have had ultimately because of the work of God, but not, uh, we didn't have yet. So, so the, the incarnation, I think is, it was necessary anyway. And, 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 uh, whether the sin or not just to join us to himself, right. um, then, but, but with sin, he joins us to himself and he, and he repairs the, mo- the broken mosaic of human nature that sin is broken. Um, he is actively obedient to the Father. Then he offers himself uh, up, up on the cross and, and then he rises from, from the dead. I mean, all, the, whole, the, whole, the whole calculus here also misses the significance of the resurrection. I mean, the, 
the resurrection itself is is what establishes um, the the final the final culmination that God always intended from the beginning, which is that we we're not only bound to Him as one, uh, we're not only clean and pure and righteous and holy and um, partaking of His nature. Um, but we're living in our bodies together with him forever in a world that never dies in a body in our bodies that are immortal. Adam's body was not immortal. It was kept. It was kept in mortality, in immortality by, um, by his union with God. And, um, but we're going to be, our bodies be remade like Christ, bodies that can't die again. That's a different, (laughs) it's a a different thing altogether. Yeah. And I think, again, the question itself is, um, is, is really disingenuous because I've never heard anyone I've never heard anyone, even the most kind of um, enthusiastic, you know, maybe penal substitutionary alone guy, if there is such a guy, argue that the only important thing about Jesus's life was his death. Um, that's not, I mean, that's, I've never heard anyone say that. And I think it's, you know, again, it's an easy, it's an easy one. It's a, it's a straw man to raise up if you've already decided, which is really, I think, at the heart of this, that, that violence and blood and death are not what you require, not, not what your life merits before a holy God. And so if there's some other, if there's something other than that, then you're going to look at the cross and say that it was, well, it was something other than that. You know, it was a, it was a, uh, you know, I've heard someone describe it recently as the, um, you know, God didn't send Jesus to the cross, like our sin sent Jesus to the cross. Um, and so, you know, we had nothing to do with God. God would have been perfectly happy for Jesus to just kind of chill out and sort of hug everyone. But um, because we were so bad, you know, we sent it. And so I said, well, you know, at first blush, you could see how that, this is what we've always, when we, when you try to get God off the hook for things, you know, when you try to sort of say that, well, then ultimately what that's, that's the first step towards nihilism, really, because then you begin to have a God that is supposedly omnipotent, supposedly active in the world, and yet somehow is either indifferent to or unconcerned with the mechanisms whereby sin is actually being adjudicated this side of heaven. So, so, you know, you could say, well, sin is, is all on us. It's all our fault. It's all that what we do and God has nothing to do with sort of active, you know, his active wrath or active um, punishment has nothing to do with it. So then, so then you wonder like, well, you know, um, all of the sort of tragedies of the world are just God sitting up there, you know, wringing his hand, shaking his head, like, you know, pacing back and forth saying, gosh, you know, I wish they could get their act together, but, but what am I supposed to do? You know, I just love them so much, but just going to let them go. And, um, and that's the first step towards actually starting to hate that God, because the, because the God, if you want to know where God has actually intervened in this death, suffering and evil of the world, you have to look directly at the cross. And that, and the fact that people, people somehow try to um, absolve him, ironically, of, uh, of participation in the punishment and redemption of the world, um, ultimately uh, devalues the, his witness of himself and then turns, turns the worship of him into something entirely other than, um, than what it should be in spirit and truth. And so I think you know, all of these techniques that have, you know, kind of risen up over the past couple of centuries in particular, you know, the theodicies with the uh, rise of the Enlightenment and all of this sort of demanding that God um, uh, defend himself against uh, atrocities and evil and, and terror. These are these are relatively modern, as Oswald Bayer points out in his little book called um, uh, On Justification and Sanctification. But at the same time, he, um, it, you know, that the, the cry and the attempt to to not implicate God in any of the 
realities of of sin and its adjudication in the world just does not do justice to to the severity of it or to the glory of his answer for it. I mean, that's that's the amazing thing is that Paul could say, this is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You know, that wasn't like him sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This was him making a confession of two things, that he was a great sinner and that, you know, as it said, that we had a greater savior, you know, that there was a friend of sinners of whom I am one is only said by someone who looks directly at the cross and sees themselves implicated in its judgment. And yet in the resurrection finds the forgiveness promised through its vindication. Yeah, it seems to me that at the bottom, the people who have problems with the penal substitutionary atonement are not so much trying to exonerate God, although that's what they'll say. I think that down deep, it's that they don't believe that their sin warrants such a solution that it's just, it can't, it can't really be so bad that this thing had to happen to Jesus to rescue me from it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, how do you live? I, I mean, I guess I did. I did for 26, 26 years, but it's hard for me to understand how now, just looking back, how I lived that long without knowing that I had an atonement, that I had, that I had, that the, the, the cross was there. And so my sins weren't over and against me. I mean, I, you know, every human being's good, I guess, at, at shoving those things down and, 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 and paving them over and pretending they're not there. Um, but what a relief it was when I, when I first realized what the cross was about. I mean, I'd, I'd gone to church my life, but I had no idea what it was about. But when you, but when I finally were, wait a minute, that none of my sins are against me anymore. None. My, my thoughts, my words, my deeds, they're all gone because of that cross and they'll never be, they'll never raise their heads again. <sighs> my, you, why would you ever want to go back to, 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 to thinking anything other, otherwise, I mean, again, I, you just, that's not an argument. Um, that's not an argument for, uh, for penal substitutionary atonement. That's, that's, but that is a, it's a, a testimony it's my, a testimony and it's my incredulity at, at anyone who would want, who, who really wants to, to, to say that it's not true. If, if it's not true, what do we have? What do we have if it's not true? Well, they have all the other the quote unquote yeah. theories, um, yeah. which I think we've talked about before. Uh, we should acknowledge our biblical, yeah, yeah, and I the think ransom theory, that ransom theory, theory the, that it's no one, Christus no Victor. one, very few people are arguing for a solitary view that these um, aspects of it. I think that the, the the main problem is that if you don't believe that God um, has the the well, to talk about God having rights is sort of silly, but at the very least, you don't believe that it's justifiable to talk about God being righteously angry um, and that we weren't at legitimate enmity, as Paul says, or that the propitiation or the hilosmos, you know, that the um, that, 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 that he, he wasn't, um, that Jesus wasn't in a certain sense sort of averting the righteous judgment that was otherwise born for, um, directed towards us from a, a holy and righteous God. If you don't believe any of that well then you have a different bible you're not reading the bible comprehensively or or faithfully and you know we've already talked about that but also you you know i think you're you're missing 
the glory of it. You know, you're missing the, the, the power. You know, Paul says, I, I endeavored among you to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. Like if it wasn't the main aspect or the main revealing feature, not the only one, but the one that actually put things into place, like how bad and how, how far off we are and how righteous, holy, and ultimately loving God is, is in this, you know, righteousness and justice of meat and mercy and justice of kissed, you know, just almost said. Um, if that doesn't become the centerpiece of your understanding of Christianity, well, then, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, like Machen said, about two different religions almost, because there's a sort of moral improvement, um, Unitarian religion that sort of looks at the cross as an example or as a, as a model, as a, as a cautionary tale, as something other than that which was warranted, um, that which that he bore on our account. Um, and uh, those are two different, two different sermons, two different churches um, right there. And I'm not surprised that, that, you know, it's split churches down through the past couple of centuries. I mean, these are, these are fighting words and it's just starting to make its way into, you know, the quote unquote um, mega churches. And it's going to have the same effect um, as it, as this, you know, poison leaven leavens the, um, the lump and, you know, thank God people by the power of the spirit hear this and start to look askance at it and start wondering, doesn't sound right. Doesn't seem like this is exactly, um, you know, what, what grandma used to tell me about Jesus. And, and, um, I just pray for discernment and courage as this makes its way uh, through other churches that, um, people will, will do the research and have the confidence and courage to stand firm on the witness of the scripture tradition, um, and reason as it were with respect to the atonement and say, um, if you lose this aspect of it, as glorious as some of the other aspects of, of it are, but if you lose this one in particular, then you have lost um, almost all of it. And I think that's that's what's at stake here. And so I, you know, I guess we'll be back next Easter fighting again mm, with the same yeah. people. Um, but hopefully um, fewer and fewer of them will will consider themselves um, still within sort of orthodox camp and just sort of come come be honest with finishing the deconstruction project that's clearly undergoing when you start talking this way about the cross. Yeah. Jesus himself acknowledges the so-called ransom theory of the atonement. He says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Hebrews specifically alludes to a victory model saying that yeah paul talks Jesus, about who are ambassadors you know, of reconciliation wins a victory against sin death and the devil and then even something that we would be most cautious about something like a moral influence theory jesus at the last supper does in fact cast himself as an exemplar for his disciples and says you know my new commandment i give you love as i have loved you and no there is no love like laying down your life for your friends. All these things are beautiful biblical images, but they're like beautiful planets orbiting around the sun of the idea that Jesus came to bear the wrath of God towards sin on our behalf. Praise Amen. God. Amen. Well, that's going to be all the time we have this week. Um, we want to keep the conversation going with you. Please be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can always join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. We're always very grateful for you taking the time to listen to us today. Hope you had a very blessed Easter. Thank you so much, as always, to Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 